You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today's show features Princeton professors Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer, who are co-authors of the new book, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. And my producer, Grant Stern, caught up with them at the Miami Book Fair this past December to talk about their book and the sad state of American politics today. Cruz and Zelizer are both political historians who used to teach a course based on this material at Princeton University, where they both still teach today. This podcast traces the history of American politics, focusing on the rise of the far right in the Republican Party, beginning with Ronald Reagan's insurgency through today. Julian Zelizer also has a new book coming out this spring entitled Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of a New Republican Party. But this book explores the seeds planted in the GOP during the Nixon era. But before we begin, I'd like to ask you to take a minute to visit meetthecandidates2020.com and check out my book series about four of the top Democratic candidates for the 2020 nomination. Please take a listen to our interview with Princeton professors Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz. I'm here with Kevin M. Cruz and Julian E. Sellier. They're the authors of Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. We're live at the Miami Book Fair, which happens every year on Miami's Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College. It's in downtown Miami. You can find out more at miamibookfair.com. So uh, which one of you guys wants to start first? I'll start. Okay, so... Julian, can you tell us a little bit about Fault Lines and what inspired you guys to write this book together? Sure. The book comes out of a course that we teach at Princeton University, or we used to teach it together. Uh, and it covers the United States since 1974, from the moment Richard Nixon resigns as president in August of 74, right through today. And it covers uh, the changes that took place in politics, in the economy, in society. And it looks at the different divisions that have shaped our society, political divisions between the party, economic divisions between wealthier and poor Americans, cultural divisions over key social issues. And we just try to trace that for readers uh, to understand the foundation of the times we live in today. That's a great point that you have to look backwards to kind of understand where we're at now. So why did you guys choose 1974 in particular as your end point? Well, you know, you could have picked any year there, but uh, we're both political historians, and so for us, Watergate loom was really large. Uh, you know, we, we almost take it for granted now that this was something that happened, obviously, but at the time, it's a huge shock. Uh, we have to remember that Richard Nixon was uh, had been reelected in 1972 by a massive landslide. Went to the Electoral College, like 520 to 17. I mean, it's a blowout. And yet, two years later, he's driven from office uh, due to this scandal, due to the, uh, due to the impeachment. By his own party. By his own party, uh, yeah. D- Democrats started, and, and Republicans come around. Around and, and really urge him to, to get out. They tell him he doesn't have the votes in the Senate. He's going to be uh, impeached and then removed. Uh, so that's a huge shock to the system, but it's only one of a series of shocks that happens around that same time. So 1973 is when you get the first OPEC oil embargo, which really shatters Americans' confidence in the economy. Uh, this is the same period when we've got the withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam, which is a huge blow to Americans' confidence in terms of foreign policy. New divisive issues are bubbling up. 1973 is Roe v. Wade, the real start of the national fight over abortion. Uh, 1975, you've got the Boston busing riots, uh, a real sign that racial... 
uh, a strife is, is, is getting worse in the wake of the civil rights movement, not better. So all of these things in this rapid succession, 73, 74, 75, really rocks Americans' faith in what they assumed was a country that was really doing well in the post-war period. And suddenly there's a sense that things are falling apart. Well, in 1976, there was a very interesting election. Jimmy Carter won, as we all know. But the story that I think is talked about less is how an insurgent candidate in the Republican Party took on a weak incumbent president, lost, but brought his party ideologically along with him. So would you say that that's one of the defining factors of this period? And and how does that impact what we're seeing today? Well, a big part of the story in the 1970s that we tell is about the emergence of this grassroots conservative movement, which tried to uh, and did push American politics to the right on a number of key issues and in terms of just the overall philosophy of the Republican Party. And the movement takes form in the 1970s. It involves many different groups. But one of the figures who captures uh, the spirit of the party more than anyone is Ronald Reagan. And while most people know Reagan runs and wins uh, for the presidency in 1980, in 76, he challenges Gerald Ford, who's the president, in the primaries and almost wins. And that was an important primary because even though he lost, he was the most exciting voice of the Republican Party. And the shift that takes place within the GOP, a kind of rightward shift of Republican politics that we are still living in the shadow of, we argue is one of the most important stories of post-1960s America. Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. It's interesting because, like you said, it was a philosophical shift, but today it's taken on a new life. So how does that relate to what we are seeing now, where we went from a philosophical shift to what one could best describe maybe as a power shift? Well, what happens is that in order to get that, that philosophy enacted, you have to have, to have power. And, and what comes out of the, the Republican Party uh, uh, is that they realize that it's not just enough for Reagan to win in 1980 and, and through the, the, the force of his charisma transform the country. And that's one of the things that we write about in the book is that the Reagan revolution, as we remember it, really was a creation of Reagan's PR team, right? And when he gets elected in 1980, it's not clear that this conservatism has washed over the country and changed things. And in fact, the course of the 1980s are ones which show that there's a real stickiness to the old liberal uh, solutions uh, and so um, policies. So things like Social Security, which Reagan uh, wants to get rid of, uh, he can't uh, privatize. Uh, And this is when you get that that famous saying that uh, Social Security is the third rail of American politics, like the third rail of a subway line is where all the power is. You touch it, you die, right? Right. Uh, and so he learns that lesson. And so what you get is a new generation of conservatives who really get their start during the Reagan era who take a different set of lessons. And Newt Gingrich is really the, the, the primary example of this, who realizes that uh, the part of the problem to getting Republican solutions, conservative solutions passed, isn't just the Democrats, it's the Republican leadership. And so they try to take them on as well. Uh, and they wage what turns out to be a successful fight, but it takes them another 14 years to, to really affect that and, and to get Gingrich into power in the, in, in the House. And you can see this with Senator Mitch McConnell today. He's really a product of this generation that is as concerned with uh, 
partisan power and understanding that Democrats and liberalism remain strong and uh, prioritizes how do you maintain that power. It's not enough to be philosophically conservative. You need control of parts of Congress and the White House. Uh, and that really shifted a lot of the agenda of the party into a much, much more a tougher stance uh, on political warfare. Well, something I've observed about the Trump administration is that it actually has a lot more former Reagan administration officials than even, you know, the Bush administration or the second Bush administration. Like they really uh, brought back a lot of these Reagan officials. But there's a schism between the Reaganites. There's the, the Conways of the world and the Rick Wilsons of the world who are very much anti-Trump and uh, the Bill Crystals of the world. And then there are the, the pro-Trump Reagan guys that, uh, for example, John Bolton up until recently, at least, we don't know really where he stands yet either. So how is that dynamic? Like, how did that dynamic come about where you had these, you know, two sides of the Republican Party and what's the impact today? Well, I mean, I think I think they are still the weaker side of the new Republican Party. I think the party has has really shifted. I do think they believe there could be a marriage that worked uh, in the Trump administration. Trump, in terms of policy, was still promoting pretty traditional Republican policies on economic deregulation, supply side tax cuts. Uh, he, he wasn't departing from the orthodoxy. So I think it's not illogical. Some Reaganites said, OK, well, we don't think much of him, uh, but we'll use this moment to get what we need. And I think some of them, not all of them, uh, but there are some who are finding there is more of a disconnect than they hope for. Uh, certainly on national security, I think that's the area you see more divergence. Uh, Trump's I don't know what you want to call it at this point, but it certainly doesn't align neatly with where some hawkish Republicans are uh, either on policy or the conduct of foreign policy. Uh, and then there are a few. It's still a handful who are willing to openly uh, depart in terms of how do you govern? What's legitimate in terms of governance? I do think there's some like a George Conway who think we have a major problem on our hands, how, how uh, Trump is conducting himself. Well, one of the bigger issues that has come up in the last two years, and it's an utter reversal for the Republican Party, is their stance on free trade and on global trade. Uh, can you explain how you know the free trade movement germinated during this time period that you guys wrote about and how there's been a fairly ironic conclusion to it? In the Trump era, yeah, it's really remarkable. Uh, you know, the free trade movement. And this this shows one of the successes of Reagan, right? The free trade movement. This is something that really I think Reagan and, and the Republican Party uh, put on the agenda, and it and it, it changes the uh, the conversation. Uh, you know, so NAFTA passes under George H. W. Bush, but it's signed under under Bill Clinton, and uh, and the legislation goes through under Bill Clinton, and uh, you see a real fight of a Democratic Party over this because it goes against everything that Democrats have traditionally believed on trade. It, it the union really resent this process, and there's a real fracture in the Democratic Party. But when Clinton comes on board with it, it's a sign that this Republican idea has suddenly won, right? And it's, it's been embraced across the board. And so what's really remarkable with Trump is that as this free trade idea swept across both parties, then a Republican comes along and undoes it, right? I mean, as late as 2016, both Mitch McConnell and Speaker of the House, then Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership yeah. Trade Agreement which President Obama spent seven years negotiating. So it's... 
It's very much a central feature of our very country. much, yeah, and, and it just it shows the way in which uh, you know there are a lot of issues that really show the way in which Trump has changed the Republican Party and gotten them to kind of follow him uh, on this, and, and the fact that he's really brought a lot of them around on this and, and pulled a one eighty from. Again, their statements just three years ago really is a remarkable shift. It, it quite is. Um, I was actually speaking with George Will about this on the program uh, earlier this week and asked him which party was the party of free trade today. I'm not going to tell you his answer, but I want to hear each of yours because I'm curious. Which party would you say supports free trade well, more today? I don't think either party wholly supports free trade. I think within the Democratic Party, you still have a lot of discontent and opposition to it. Uh, but I think with President Trump as the uh, head of the party, which he is, it's hard to say they are aligned with free trade at this point. And I think Democrats are closer to that. There's many more prominent voices in the Democratic primaries uh, who are all in on free trade than in the Republican Party with one person at the top. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd agree with that. But, but both that it's messy, but, but on balance, I think you're seeing the Democrats are really – um, bizarrely more committed to free trade given the, the stance that Obama had on TPP and, and, and Trump's reversal. It's as simple as that. That's not the answer George will give. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, let's talk about the Reagan revolution, mm -hmm. yep. then the Gingrich revolution, and now here we are. Is Trump a revolution too for the Republicans? I think, I mean, I, I think what we try to show is it's not a revolution. There, it, it's a continuum. And uh, certainly the Republican Party changes dramatically in the 70s, culminating with Reagan bringing this new philosophy of right-wing uh, Republican policy, anti-government ethos into the White House. Gingrich uh, and his allies then combine a new kind of partisan warfare, uh, which will in his mind, be the only way conservatism will ever win, a smash-mouth, anti-institutional kind of politics. Uh, and, and then in the 90s and early 2000s, culminating with the Tea Party, uh, in 2010-11, you see this really uh, profound rightward shift of uh, Republican politics take form uh, and, and almost perfect itself in, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And, and Trump comes out of this. He also comes out of this new conservative ecosystem in the media, uh, which is very powerful in scale and scope and, and promotes a, a party line very effectively. And so those two trends come together in 2016. I don't think it, I, I mean, I don't think we argue it's a Trump revolution. Understanding Trump is very distinct uh, and doing some pretty unconventional things. But to just understand him as someone who comes out of nowhere, someone who wins the Republican primary for no explicit reason, and someone who's totally out of line with the Republican Party today, that's a misreading of American history. And I think that's one of the uh, key lessons of the book. Well, the Tea Party has, is a seminal event in the later history of the Republican Party. Uh, Ten years ago, just about, mm -hmm. they started a movement. Many have called it an astroturf grassroots movement because it was funded by a cadre of billionaires. Mm -hmm. um, but that movement really symbolized what has become the majority of the Republican Party today. And Donald Trump only started riding to popularity right after the birth of that movement uh, with his birtherism mm -hmm. idea, right? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. and look, his biggest allies are Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan in the House. They are the head of the Freedom Caucus, and and you're right. So he comes out of the movement literally at the same time does he enter into politics. He is uh, part of the birther movement, which uh, the Tea Party very much embraces as a way to attack uh, uh, President Obama and uh, President Trump is pretty aligned in terms of most policies of where Tea Party Republicans are. So he is part of that movement. It's more a Tea Party revolution than a Trump revolution. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. We discussed a schism inside the Republican Party before, but what we're seeing inside the Republican Party today is specifically inside the House Freedom Caucus, which is the uh, center of the Tea Party movement today, is that one of the co-founders of the Tea Party movement, Justin Mosh, came out against Donald Trump mm-hmm. and f- in favor of, you know, upholding the Constitution. The other members, as you just said, are his top defenders. So people are asking, why isn't there a schism inside the Republican Party today? I'm asking you guys. Why do you think that is? I think uh, the big lesson there is is that what happened to one of the other real Tea Party guys, Eric Cantor, right, uh, who, who got primaried from the right, uh, which seemed uh, impossible. If you told me that in 2010 that Eric Cantor was going to get primaried from the right and lose, I would have been stunned. Uh, and yet it showed uh, when he did, and he, he did because he, there was a slight bit of air between him and the Republican orthodoxy on, on immigration, and that was enough of a fatal blow, but he was suddenly a rhino, a Republican in name only. Uh, that uh, caught him from the right. Uh, and so I think they're all uh, terrified of that. Uh, so Amash uh, really showed that he uh, put his principles above his party uh, and then left the party as a result of that, right? He realized there wasn't a place for him there. I think we uh, we had hoped that uh, um, other people might see the same sort of commitment to principle over uh, loyalty to the president. But it's been clear that no one else is going to is going to join him on that. I mean, we saw in the, in the impeachment hearings, uh, Will Hurd, who's also retiring, and many people thought uh, would have the freedom to kind of speak up and, and act as conscious, has just fallen in line with the party too. So they're very clearly uh, committed to the president and have uh, tied their fortunes to his. And part of it is you have this Republican Party is depending on a much narrower coalition than back in the Reagan years. I mean, when Reagan was president, the idea was to build a pretty broad coalition that was the equivalent of the New Deal coalition in the 30s. And George W. Bush, he had the same vision. I mean, he was very intent on winning uh, the vote of immigrants as a way to broaden the coalition. Now the Republican Party isn't really thinking that way. It says we have a narrower part of the electorate. It's shrinking. Kind of rural uh, areas will be the heart of our coalition. But to preserve that, we need absolute total loyalty. And the mechanisms of the party machine are focused on that because you can't afford to lose any vote if you have a very narrow part of the electorate. And I think that dynamic explains a lot of, of what happens. Uh, there is a rational element of, of not, not a principle necessarily, but a rational element how they think of it. And I think you need to understand the narrowness of, of the Republican appeal right now uh, to also understand why they are totally loyal at this point and not willing to defect other than the Amash revolution of one. <laughs> <laughs> so... Something. Uh, let's stray outside the lines of the book completely here for a second. Uh, a recent ABC poll 
said that 70% of Americans believe it's wrong for a president to seek assistance from a foreign leader to investigate a political, domestic political opponent. But that same poll found roughly 51% believed that the president should be impeached and removed. At 70%, that means that some percentage of Republicans and certainly a high percentage of independents believe that the outlines of what have mm -hmm. been presented are wrong. Why do you believe that there is this 19% gap? And what do you think needs to be done to persuade these people and close the gap? It's a great question. I mean, I, mean, I think the, the, the gap is easy to explain, given that if you, if you watch the way in which impeachment coverage has been unfolding on conservative media, it's an alternate universe. I mean, uh, you know, if you were getting your information about this from uh, Sean Hannity or Laura Ingram or even from the regular Fox News programming, you're getting a very different perspective on this than I think you are if you're watching CNN or NPR or PBS or C-SPAN, right? Uh, and so that's part of it. And so that might be the, 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 that might be the disconnect that, yes, in theory, that would be wrong. But clearly, that's not what this president did from the coverage I followed on, say, Fox. Right. So I think that accounts for that difference. How to win those people over? I'm not sure they're winnable. Uh, I think there's there's a real hardening of the partisan lines here. And I don't know if you're going to get uh, everyone on board. That bare majority um, might be as strong as, as it gets. We have to remember when. When the House was closing in on Nixon, uh, right when it voted for articles of impeachment, only about 58 percent, if I'm remembering this right, of the public approved it at that time, right? And that was enough. And so if, if right now it's 51, 52, that might be all it gets. But a, but a bare majority um, might be all the public support that we see for this, but that might be enough. I think one other small thing that – not small thing. One other big thing that's going on, and it's related to the book, is, is people of this era have lived through really intense – Partisanship, meaning they have seen how extreme partisanship could go and how um, how broken our politics can be. And my suspicion would be there are probably some non-Fox viewers who are also just worried uh, about the logic of impeachment becoming normalized, even if justified, even if they agree this is the case where you do it. There's probably some people who are worried all of a sudden this becomes uh, – kind of an ongoing uh, element of partisan politics. So, so it's not uh, a totally uh, a surprise that people who have lived through this fault lines era are just worried about where this might go. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me and discuss your new book, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Can you tell our listeners where they can catch up with you on the internet after the program? Sure. Well, Julian is on CNN nonstop, so you can find him there. Uh, we're both on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, Kevin M. Cruz. And I'm at Julian Zelizer. Can you and, spell uh, that for our listeners? J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. And I'm also on Here and Now on NPR. Gentlemen, thank you again so much for joining me on the show. Pleasure thank to be here. Thanks again to Professors Zelizer and Cruz. Make sure to pick up their book, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. And keep in mind that Zelizer is releasing a book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party this spring. Thank you, Grant Stern, our producer, for doing this interview. You can visit our website at DworkinReport.com. You can subscribe to the podcast at Patreon.com slash DworkinReport. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash DworkinReport. Thanks again for listening. Onward!